Hello, everyone. Welcome to Your Injury Lawyer podcast. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. We have a special guest today, and his name is Lee Gunn. Lee is an attorney in the Tampa Bay area. And Lee, I happened to look at your website today, and you have some incredible results. And before I talk about the results, in order for people to get money in in injury claims, they need to be injured and, and people just don't get money because it's a lottery. And by doing what you, you do, not only do you get money, you probably hopefully change people's behavior. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I, I don't think that tort law, civil justice is about getting money. I think it is about compensating the folks that are hurt. It's about encouraging better behavior. It's about having businesses incentivized to invest in safety because the realization of an injury claim is recognized in boardrooms to have a cost. And unfortunately, we'd love to see people in boardrooms act like empathetic human beings as they conduct business, that doesn't always occur. Too often, I think, the profit motivation, which is absolutely correct in a capital society, in a free society, in a free market, is guided too much by the profit motive and too little by the human values of doing business the right way. And so, by having a civil justice system that works and gives folks access to courts and allows for the full accountability of the injuries that businesses cause, and not purposefully, but simply there is a social cost. And by having an effective civil justice system, what we really do, Bill, I think, is take the cost of that business away from being borne simply by the innocent patient in a hospital, the innocent motorist on the roadway. And instead it's spread throughout our society in a way that the businesses that create the risk, as well as the profit, as well as all the necessary services, uh, bear it equitably. If, if, for example, the failure to have enough nurses on the floor in a hospital causes a patient to die, should that patient's family bear that cost. Meanwhile, the hospital has profited by lower cost of care and higher profit margins because they haven't paid for the nurses necessary to maintain reasonable care and reasonable patient safety. It's interesting to see that Kaiser just went out today on strike in their healthcare workers, some 75,000 workers built, just went on strike. And you would think these workers are just doing it for the money. But one of their primary demands of Kaiser, this big health network, is we need more staff. We can't keep doing what we do at the patient level we're required to do it and keep our own sanity and provide reasonably safe care to our patients. So please, yes, we want to get paid more fairly, but as importantly, we want good staffing ratios of healthcare provider to patient. And one of the ways that I think our civil justice system 
in which I play a small part can encourage better behavior, such as putting enough nurses on the floor, is by saying to the boardroom, if you do not provide safe care, if you do not hire qualified and caring and enough healthcare workers, you in the boardroom will see the cost of that, not just the patient. And while we can never truly make the injured family who lost a loved one truly whole, at least the civil justice system tries to recognize to those family members or that injured patient or that injured motorist that society cares and we know you need the help and we're going to provide that to you through a fair and equitable civil justice system that believes in the right to trial by jury. Thank you, Lee, for trying to change people's actions and by doing that, also compensating people when they're injured due to no fault of their own. And hopefully what you do is deterring people from causing other people to get injured. So Lee, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where did you grow up? Where did you go to high school? Where did you maybe go to college and law school? And and how did you become a lawyer? All right. Well, I, while my parents went to, to, to college, uh, I'm the first book professional in the family. My mother was a school teacher. My father sold business adding machines back before there were computers. And he would bring home these big keyboards and I would play with these big keyboards, which were, were the precursor for how banks would now become computerized and the data we move today. So I go back a few years, Bill. Uh, but I, I grew up in, in the Midwest, Michigan and Ohio. I moved down halfway through my senior year and finished school down here in the Tampa Bay area, Largo High School. I was pre-admitted to the University of Michigan, having grown up very close to Ann Arbor and uh, came down here. And I have to be candid with you. The incentivization to a 17-year-old isn't necessarily the best rated school, but rather I visited the University of Florida and I went to a campus that was warm and sunny and filled with pools. And I left behind a little Fiat 850 sports fighter, a tiny, tiny, tiny. 850 is the number of CCs with motorcycles that are you know, much bigger in their engines. But I left that in a snowbank up in Michigan. And I decided, listen, my family had relocated from Michigan to Florida. I had grandparents here. And what am I thinking that I'm going to stay up in, in, in Michigan? As much as I loved growing up in the Midwest, one of the best things that could have happened to me personally is the chance to become a Floridian. I'm a transplant. I've got two, you know, at home children that were born or raised here, but you know, I'm, I'm that Midwest transplant. So then went to the university of Florida and candidly, Bill, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my world. I thought I'd be an architect. And then in the 12th grade of high school, I visited the architecture firm and I went down in this Michigan basement and I said, who are all these people that are working in all these desks? Drawing and drawing and drawing. Oh, those are architects. So what do you mean that, that I, I'm thinking I'm going to, you know, design the next Empire State Building? And oh, no, no. Your first 10 years, you're going to take concepts from senior design architects and you're going to transfer those concepts down to actual working drawings. And I said, no, thank you. So now I'm lost. I don't know what I want to be. So I knew I, I liked doing business, got a business degree, still wasn't ready. I was, I was reasonably young, though. I, I went through uh, in, in three years and started at 17. So now I'm this 20 year old, I'm really not ready to take on the real world. And I said, I can do anything with a law degree. I don't know what I want to do with a law degree, but a law degree 
just, it's never going to be a waste to get that extra education. So I got the law degree by my third year of law. I went to moot court. We didn't have trial team at UF back then. Loved the idea of argument, loved the idea of being in the courtroom. And so I was fortunate to get a job with a firm here in Tampa. At the time, it was considered a big firm. We had 65 lawyers and, um, and, and it was Shack for Fairs, Dollings and Evans. And I grew up defending insurance companies and in fact, asbestos manufacturers and distributors. So, you know, I started learning on the side of, of business, insurers, big business. And, and it really helped me to understand better trial practice. And I'm also always thankful to the senior members of that firm bill because the training that I got there, the experience, I tried three cases my first year, something we just can't get young lawyers access to because of the cost and the limitations that are real world today, because trials are so expensive. But back then I, it was a great training ground. And, and, you know, I did 17 years bill of, of, of defense work before I decided to become an advocate for policyholders, patients, and other persons uh, who, who needed a, a plaintiff's advocate. So you did around three jury trials the first year out of law school. That's what we could do back In the next few years, you did a bunch of other trials too? Yeah. I, so board certification in civil trial was a new concept when I started. It didn't exist when I started in 1983. Um, by 1990, though, Bill, I, I was a board certified civil trial lawyer and also AV rated by Martindale. And I had become a partner at Shackleford. I think I was 28, maybe 29, but I think 28. And then by 30, I started my own law firm with two other Shackleford partners, again, doing defense work. Um, and then from 1990 to 2000, um, we grew that firm from three lawyers and two staff members to 17 or 18 lawyers and another 30 or so staff. So we, 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 we grew it into a nice, uh, boutique defense firm. Uh, I represented at one point with my partners, a couple hospitals, some of which you may know, Humana, HCA. Yeah, we had 17 hospitals. So in addition to that, I also represented Coca-Cola Enterprises, Beckton Dickinson for their latex work, construction defect litigation statewide for travelers. So I, I had a, a very, very, very robust defense practice. But at the end of the day, Bill, you know, you got to be happy, right? You know, you, you've got to be happy with your job. You got to be happy with your career. I think, yeah, if you're not enjoying what you're doing and let, I'll share just briefly, well, why did you change? Like, what, what inspired you to make the move from this successful, growing, robust defense practice with, you know, blue chip clientele? Why would you ever, and, and, and there are two, two stories I'll share very quickly. One, I'm trying case down in, uh, in, in the, the Bradenton area. And it's an enterprise before the Graves Amendment, meaning that enterprise was my client could be fully liable back then for this. It rents a pickup truck to a young man who takes his buddies and they're about to take it in uh, and return it, but they decide to kind of rag it out a little bit. So they're in this area of, of our rural communities up this way and they decide to just go wild with this pickup and all the off-roading that you can do. A single uh, mother, her only son, is a right front passenger in this pickup truck while they're out there ragging it out. He does not put his seatbelt on. Take a turn too fast, the vehicle rolls over. He partially ejects and the roof line 
crushes his chest from which he would ultimately die. The case is brought for wrongful death, right? The negligent operation of a motor vehicle that results in the death of this, I believe he was 16 or 17 at the time. I tried the case. Now I made a fair offer. I thought a fair offer. And that's one thing I took pride in as a defense lawyer. I would always try to get a fair settlement value from my clients. It wasn't deemed fair enough for opposing counsel and the client to accept it. And so we tried the case. At the end of the case, the jury returned a total value verdict for this only child's loss to a single mother of $100,000. Then found the child who died 90% at fault because he didn't wear a seatbelt. Thus, the verdict net of comparative was $10,000 for this mom's loss. And by the time we deducted for setoffs for PIP and the like, I won the case. You would think I would be ecstatic. You would think that's one of those, you go to the bar afterward and you brag about what a great trial lawyer you are. And I, and I, and I just was forlorn about it. I, I felt terrible about it. And while I made a fair offer, now I'm saying I'm using my skills to do what? And at the end of the day, I didn't feel right about it. And so a friend of mine that I'd gone to law school with, Chip Merlin, had a, had a law firm and he was on the precipice of growing his firm. And I talked with him and he said, you can't keep doing this. You don't want your tombstone to read, I allow travelers to pay an extra penny in dividend with my skills. Go out with me and let's help people. So I joined with Chip for about five years. He went off and as you know, has become one of the most preeminent property lawyers in the country, advocated for policy or property insurance rights. And then I've gone on and done, as you mentioned, I've had my own success uh, in a different avenue. So it's been quite a journey. It's been a tremendous, tremendous 40 years that I practice law. Uh, I'm very proud of it. Uh, and I'm very, very happy that I've spent the last 23 using my skills to help families and individuals. How long have you had your own firm? So Chip and I had our own firm. Well, I had my own firm since 1990, right? With two partners. Then in 2000, I had the firm with one partner. And then finally, no one would put up with me, Bill. So I've had my current firm since 2005. So I went on your website, and on your website, you mentioned, and maybe some people don't know who you are, and I think it's important for them to know this. You mentioned a $13.8 million settlement, a $10.5 million settlement for improper surgery a $10 million, uh, I'm not sure if it was a settlement or trial for improper uh, brain testing, I think it is, 6.815 million for a bariatric surgery case, a $5 million stroke case, $4.8 million premises liability case, 4.6 million for a denied homeowner's claim and $4 million for an auto accident case. So you've had some incredible results over the years and I want to congratulate you. And I'm seeing you, you do medical malpractice, uh, you do premises liability, you do auto accident claims and, and the $4.6 million claim was a denial of homeowners claim. Could you maybe tell uh, the listeners what kind of claims your firm 
does? Sure, Bill. Um, so, so I would say there's two big buckets and then the, the rest is a smaller bucket, but we do a, we do quite a bit of medical negligence work. We do a lot of coverage and bad faith work. And then the rest of our work is primarily just a smattering of catastrophic injury type of claims, which that would be premises liability and, and the, the straight auto work that we do. Um, most all of the cases come to me uh, through other lawyers. So I'm always flattered by the fact that um, my peers will look to me for the specialty work that I do. Um, as you know, and maybe our listeners don't appreciate fully, medical negligence cases are hugely difficult. The laws are extremely protective of healthcare providers. The amount of expense and the experts that you have to retain in a medical negligence case, it is not uncommon to put 50, 100, 200, even 300 plus, if you do a crime case, through the workup just in your costs. And then, you know, as a professional business owner, I'm paying years because these cases can take three, four, five, six years to resolve. I'm carrying all that overhead as a business with no revenue for all of those years. So not every practitioner wants to do that, nor should a practitioner without the specialty workup and training, uh, in my opinion, they shouldn't take those cases on because it's not fair to them. And most importantly, it's not fair to the patient client. It just needs to be in the hands of, of, a, of a lawyer that has that background training and experience and capital to be able to, to prosecute cases. And frankly, the credibility with the defense bar and the risk managers of hospitals, et cetera, to say, okay, this is a firm that knows what they're doing. Let's try to get it resolved and get fair dollars paid on it rather than, you know, the attitude being, let's take advantage of the fact this poor patient didn't hire a lawyer who really knows the ropes. Chances are we can get this case under value because of that. Right. So, so, uh, you know, that's a big, big bucket. The other is, uh, my bad faith bucket. Okay. And coverage. So back in my days as a insurance defense lawyer, uh, I did a lot of coverage and, and bad faith defense. And so I've taken those skills uh, and used them to now advocate for policyholders. And then when we have, um, cases that involve a, a catastrophic loss, uh, then, then those are the cases that I look to. Um, you want me to give you a couple of fairly recent examples. One case, some of your listeners may have heard about happened a couple of years ago. And that was a young lady uh, was up in the Wiplacoochee Electric Service vicinity. And it was a Sunday and she decided that she was going to leave after the Sunday time of family and help a friend uh, who lived a couple of miles away with some homework for Monday class. The last thing mom says to her 17 year old senior ROTC lieutenant at high school is I love you. And thankfully she got to say that because there was a wind event that took down a tree that should never have been left hanging over a power line. That tree took the power line down and the power line just happened to be down right as this young lady was driving on the roadway. It entangled in her wheels, in her engine well. It did not shut off. The, the ground fault interruption protection device did not trip. As a result, the young lady was basically in a catch-22 environment. She's sitting there. There's electrification in this rainstorm of the water on the pavement, and now her car erupts into flames. 
So she's faced with, with, with no exit. She tries to get out of her vehicle. She's observed by a neighbor who sees this event through their front living room picture window to try to get away from the vehicle. The minute she steps on the ground, she freezes from the power and she falls to the ground. It was an absolute horrific event. And I was very, very privileged to be retained by the parents who explained that, that this young lady was their miracle child, where they had met as high schoolers. They had reconnected as collegians. They had gotten married, but were told after years of effort, they could not have a child. They finally did through just happenstance and fate and God's will, if you believe in such, they had a child. And so this child was their marital child. And she, Bill, could not have been a better human being. She helped others as she was doing that Sunday, that faithful effort to go help with homework. She was a lieutenant in the ROTC. She was the homecoming queen for ROTC, ROTC in her junior and her senior years. And she was a very strong academic student. And because the power company chose not to clear lines when this neighborhood was built out or at any time thereafter, and they left this sandy pine, one of the most dangerous trees because they're very top heavy and, when, and they will break in the wind because that setup, that trap existed for years, it finally sprung and took that young lady's life. So that to me is an, an example of a case, Bill, where as advocates, we're very, very privileged to advocate for that family and, and bring to light the need for power companies to exercise better care about keeping clearance in their, their high power lines. You know, they'll, they'll often look at clearing to maximize, uh, well, minimize interruption. But the reality is you, know, you have to look at is the tree in a neighborhood? Because if the tree is not along the side of an interstate, yes, that may be a big interruption event if that tree falls, but it's an interruption event. When you have trees hang over power lines in a neighborhood, now when that power line falls, it doesn't turn off typically, and it can absolutely do as it did here, take a life. So that's part of that messaging, right, Bill, that, listen, this is the way we help in the civil justice system to both give closure and a sense of justice to those who are victims, and I don't use that word lightly, but this family was victimized by poor decisions on the part of the power company. So that's a fairly recent case within the last couple of years. Can you tell us about that case? Did it go into litigation? Did it go into trial? It, it, it was litigated, and, and like most of mine on the website that you mentioned, they're all confidential, Bill. I mean, I, I'd love to get into the details of, of how we monetized it. But, you know, I can tell you that case isn't even posted on the website that you read. I guess I need to update it. It's been in the last year or so, maybe less than a year. Um, so yes, that case resolved, um, as most of the cases have, have resolved. What you find is if you're prepared to go to trial on a, a very compelling case with large damages, what clear minds typically prevail. and it's it, at a certain point, it doesn't make sense, right, to to take the risk because you just don't know. Uh, my overarching thoughts about juries is they always try to do the fair thing. They really do. Uh, but what happens in a courtroom and how those six people collectively exercise wisdom 
is something that usually results in one side getting too much and the other too little, in my experience. Oftentimes they get it right, but it's a little bit higher or a little bit lower than maybe when there's a verdict that everybody thinks about, you'd think, oh, it's going to come in at this value. So if I can bring to my, my client's closure and certainty and avoid the huge emotional toll that trials take on families, I, I, I try to do that. But again, it's got to be the right fair, fair number. So you mentioned the, the right fair number. And in a case like that, what kind of thought process do you go through to try to work up what the right number is? Do you use focus groups or your previous trials or just talking to people or how, how, how do you determine what you think that case is worth and, and what a fair settlement would be for your clients? Yep. You, you nailed them. Talk to people, get a sense of how, you know, the barbershop, right? Uh, talk to your peers. What do my peers think that, that in their experience, get the cumulative experience, not just mine, which of course I always use, um, the focus group driven research. So we try to bring, we try to bring science in, we try to bring, you know, instinct in, uh, trials, I think are often instinctively conducted right in the moment. And so we try to bring all that in, uh, to advise the client on here's what we would expect the range of probable verdict outcome to be and have some support for it so they feel comfortable uh, when they make their decision. Thank you. I think you were about to maybe tell us about another case that you were involved in. So, all right, uh, let me share if I can. I, my first, after I, I went truly on my own, had no partners. One of the most interesting, challenging cases I ever did that I can talk somewhat about involved a physician by the name of Ruben Quintero. And I think he still practices likely in Florida. Dr. Quintero was one of five people, physicians at Wayne State University, who created the concept and the technique known as photoscopy. Photoscopy is basically taking a, a, a microscopic surgery into the womb and performing surgery on a fetus. Incredible. Some people have seen it on the Discovery Channel or elsewhere where you see the surgeon with his gloved hand and the little baby is holding onto his pinky and the, the hand is just so, so tiny. So that's what this doctor specialized in. And he was at the time here at a hospital known as St. Joseph's Women's Hospital. And, and he was engaged in uh, twin twin transfusion syndrome surgery, otoscopy. And I won't get into too much detail to bore everybody, but essentially what he would do is one twin was taking all the blood supply away from the other twin and at risk that the subordinate twin would cause both to die. And so photoscopy was actually going in and quote, sacrificing. Think about this at a Catholic hospital. Would be sacrificing the subordinate, the weaker twin, by cutting off that twin's blood supply, thus allowing the dominant twin to go to term and survive, okay? He decided that he wanted to extend the scope of this technique into the treatment of teratomas. Teratoma is simply a mass of various cells that 
are somewhat human-like, but are of really no substantive uh, functional form. Um, you may see that in the grotesque days of old at carnivals where such t would be in a jar and there's like an eyeball sticking out from a massive tissue. And that's basically, it's a non-functioning tumor, but it's, it's not cancer. It's not a tumor that's going to cause you to, to, to have cancer or, or be cancerous, but, but it would grow. And like the twin twin transfusion system. The tumor gets so big that it starts to draw blood supply. And there's just one heart, of course, that is now feeding both the fetus and this huge mass of just nondescript cells called a teratoma. And this teratoma was sacroidal, meaning it grew out of the tail. So his concept, Bill, was to go in there like he does in photoscopy and cut the blood supply off to their teratoma, close the womb back up, let the baby go to term, take the baby through cesarean, and then take the tumor out. But the tumor would, would not continue to have had a blood supply and would die off and would not risk that the, the baby would go to heart failure, right? Because it's having to work too hard to both provide blood to the fetus as well as to the tumor. That was his concept. Well, what he should have known is that in a teratoma, you have direct arterial to venous communication. As a result, the blood will flow freely all the way through the circulatory system, and it never goes to a capillary bed. And not to get too technical, but essentially what he was going to do is ablate with alcohol, stop the blood flow into the teratoma with, with alcohol, because the alcohol will cause an inflammation in the vessel, and it will clot, and it will stop the blood flow. So instead of that happening intraoperatively, when he injects the alcohol, it goes directly through the teratoma's blood into the baby's bloodstream, and it starts clotting. And ultimately, there was a video produced that showed this surgery, and inside this fetal heart, you could see the blood clots that had formed, and it, it almost looked like the ping-pong balls in a lottery, just these little clots bouncing around inside the flowing blood being pumped through the heart. And... and those clots then went out into the baby and caused the baby to have basically strokes throughout her body, her brain, her right lower extremity, other areas never then further developed in utero. So the baby now comes and is ultimately delivered, but has these tremendous deficits for the rest of the child's life. And aggravating all this, was that he had told mom that if you don't have this surgery, your baby will die. And the baby has a condition known as fetal hydrops. She then thinking no choice, she and her husband max their credit cards, borrow what they can, clean out their bank accounts because they got to pay cash because this is experimental. She comes from the East Coast of Florida to the West, is counseled. He says to her, I've done this one other time. The baby died 24 hours later of anemia. I have a fix for that. I'm going to do an umbilical cord transfusion. I'm going to load up this baby with blood so that the baby won't become anemic and die, like my other case. When we got the records, we found that was false. Indeed, the only other time he had done it, 
the baby, the fetus, had died in utero during surgery. So this was a, you know, a, a horror story. That's all I can say. And I had this case and I'm thinking, oh my God, I am so over my head on medicine, right? This is, there's one expert. You know, there were four experts in the world who were qualified. And luckily I had one expert that looked at the records and said, my former medical partner has gone too far. I will help this family. And so he jumped in with two weeks left on the statute of limitation to give me the necessary affidavit to allow my case to proceed to the court. And then we ultimately, like we discussed, we ultimately, with all this evidence now out, were able to resolve that case. And the only condition that I had that I can share about the money was I said, this behavior is so bad, Dr. Quintero must personally write a check for $100,000 to my family that is not confidential and that everybody has to swear it, he's not getting reimbursed because I cannot have insurance companies and hospitals write over his behavior and him have no financial consequence. Just there has to be some, some message to him of how wrong this was and a hopes that he'd learn from it and not continue in that kind of behavior. So that was my, that was my first bill uh, early on. I don't say my first, it was an early on what you would consider to be very large result. The, did, did the doctor lose his privileges at that hospital after the litigation happened? So he, he did. And they stopped that, that hospital to my knowledge, stopped also the twin twin transfusion because I don't know that the ethics side of the hospital, of this then very Catholic institution, was fully apprised of his techniques to end twin-twin transfusion syndrome, right? That, that you were sacrificing one baby to save the other baby. Um, not really consistent with a lot of the principles of which I know, and I'm not Catholic, of a Catholic belief system. And that he, but, but here's the rest of the story, Bill. He went to the best of my knowledge, double check me, but he went to USF where he has immunity as a sovereign. And then the last I heard he was likewise down at the University of Miami after he was no longer at USF. So again, then he goes to these research facilities that also have sovereign immunity. So I haven't seen cases from him. I certainly hope that he has practiced nothing but the most ethical and, and forthright medicine and, and I respect the need for advancement in research and medicine. I hope it's being done the right way. It can be done the right way. It should have been done the right way. We have institutional review boards that, that look over these things. And uh, if, if it's done right, medicine is advanced uh, without these kinds of horror stories. And, and you know, imagine, ma just imagine the guilt of the mother. Imagine the guilt of the mother thinking that she was responsible because she made such a bad decision for her child. Um, and indeed it, it was a decision made on pretense and, and not her fault. And, and probably the greatest thing you see Bill, when cases like that result is that when you talk about justice, isn't just money, but the realization that it wasn't all my fault, maybe it wasn't my fault at all, says mom. And that just the relief of knowing that I didn't do this to my child was, was beyond the dollars. 
can you give us some idea of how you maybe can give us some tips on how do you usually do a voir dire and, and maybe how you do an opening, uh, could you maybe try to help us teach us something? All right. So let's talk, let's talk about here. Um, I don't have any secrets. I understand Alex Alvarez picks one heck of a jury, right? Um, my, my experience in what are, and I have what are between, you know, panels 12 to 15 up to, I think the largest panel I've did was close to 200 at, at one setting. Um, but, but, uh, the, the key is knowing the theme of your case, going as far as you can to try your case during what I within the rule or within what that judge will let you do to get as much of a true feel for how those folks on the panel ultimately selected will view the evidence you anticipate presenting. Right. And the way you have to do that, there's, there's so many ways that I've done it. Um, the American board of trial advocate questionnaire in advance, a, a tobacco questionnaire in advance, more standard advance questionnaires. And for the listeners, but you know, normally you just stand up, start asking your questions, but it, in large cases with a lot of potential jurors called the Benairi will get advanced questionnaires that are more than just where do you work and have you ever been in law enforcement, never been on a jury before, which are standard questions we see. And that gives you a lot of insights and you can go as far as Bill hiring, you know, in, in his day, I think he's retired now, Harvey Moore and other focus group people and other psychologists to come in, Amy Singer, and you know, all the kids have a good group in Florida to help you, uh, or you can just do it on your own. But once you've made all those logistic choices, you just go in and talk and you have to get them to talk and you have to, to, to create that rapport to get them to open up as potential jurors. And then you have to really probe them. Um, and the technique for that, it, it, you know, there's so many ways that it's like saying to somebody ahead of time, you know, how are you going to sell this car to this customer? Well, I don't know. The basic thing is I want to know what do you need? What, you know, what do you like and what can you afford? Right. And how do I ask that in a way that's probing and I'm going to get truthful responses, but at the same time aren't offensive, right? That's always the balance. You know, sometimes you just are up front. You say, you're not going to like me. Don't take this personally. I'm not here to be liked. Okay. Are you okay? Can you still, can you still return a verdict based on the evidence if you don't like me or you don't like somebody else in this case? This is, you know, so I'm going to cut you off and you're going to say, I don't like that, but it, can you respect that? I need to do that. And hopefully by being, I think very transparent with the, the potential jury, you'll establish your credibility with them because a trial is what 90% credibility of, of you and the evidence. I mean, if they don't, I mean, as plaintiffs, you know, the, the burden of proof's tough, right? You know, we have the burden of proof in each and every element. It, it's no cakewalk. There's no, there's a, you don't, <laughs> you don't walk in those courtrooms and just get a frivolous jury verdict. All right. You know, you've got to prove your case. And if you're not somebody the jury trusts when presenting evidence, you've really put your client behind. 
So that's but thought of what art. In opening, I mean, the masters have written books about it. And, and I agree that it's all about telling the story. Don't get mechanical. Don't go right into here are the elements. There's a duty. There was a breach of the duty. It was a legal cause. It's here are the damages that you can award on your. Don't do that. You know, don't do that. You got to do some of that. And, and you got to do a lot of that in closing, but in opening, by the time you've picked the jury and you've opened the case, most people say 90% of the case is decided without the evidence coming in on either side, right? So if you can't establish rapport in Valdire, get at least a neutral jury, you know, don't have somebody in there with a, an agenda to, you know, that's the problem we have as plaintiffs, right, Bill, is it, it just takes one. And if you have one wolf in sheep's clothing who's just got an absolute, I'm an anti-lawsuit, and I'm going to say what I need to say to get on this jury, and then I'm going to go back there, and I'm going to make sure this verdict is for the defense. So you got to try to flesh that person up. But if you got six open-minded people or eight federal courts, and then you tell them a good story, something that resonates, something that, you know, the reptilian theory, right? But something that says, this isn't right at a visceral level. If you can get the jury thinking this isn't right at a visceral level, you've got a good shot at the verdict that you want as a plaintiff. Thank you. You mentioned that you have some children. And are any of them maybe going to be lawyers? Or what do you think they're going to do? Well, Bill, I got to be honest, your timing for this issue, it couldn't be better, okay? So I have two children. I am, first and foremost, married to a wonderful woman who is a lawyer, whom you may know, Tracy Rappel's gun, who's been a board-certified appellate lawyer for 20-plus years. And um, when I mess up, she fixes it on appeal, right? So it's, it's good to have that resource. I need it more than I like to admit. And we have two wonderful children, um, Lee Dalton Gunn V and Cameron Raffles Gunn. So I'll start with our younger daughter, very proud. She went to school at the new school in Manhattan, New York and graduated. And to answer your question, we have every hope that she will become a lawyer. She is a 1L at UCLA Law. So she's gone from New York City to Los Angeles, not a small town girl. Um, and is, you know, I, I just got a note from her. This is, this is, they're not long, Bill. I'm good. I'm tired. Love you. And that's all I need to hear. Right. So very proud. And then, um, my son, uh, was a Gator undergrad and then went to Georgetown law center for his legal education, passed the bar about a year or so ago, joined the banker Lopez. And you probably know the firm here in, in town and uh, the old Viola White and uh, did a year at Banker Lopez doing insurance defense, um, professional liability defense and aviation defense and products. And uh, just Monday is now working at Gun Laundry. So I now have Delton Gun, Lee Delton Gun the fifth joining the firm. And I also have for the last couple of years, I've had my nephew. Uh, two sisters and uh, my nephew who started at Shook and then was uh, Judge Kavakovich's law clerk for two years and then did a year at Gunster. And uh, I'm looking for a lawyer and we're having a conversation. I'm thinking, well, you you know, you got a network out there and it's, I'm looking for this age group. And 
you know, you know, any lawyers that I could hire, I got a real need. And he just looked at me and said, Uncle Lee, I'm right here. <laughs> I was like, I would never impose on you. You've got this wonderful position at a silk stocking statewide, you know, full service law firm, Gunster. I don't need to tell you what a fantastic law firm that is. And so I, I was just taken aback that, that Brian Hedstrom would want to work here. And so he kind of paved the way. And then for my son to look at me and I said, I thought you were going to stay. And, you know, big firm security and everything. He's just like, dad, I, I just want to work with you. So I'm obviously very proud of, of both of them um, being here. And I think more to the point, our clients, Bill, are getting really good lawyers working here. They happen to be family, but they're really good lawyer additions to an already strong legal team. So thanks for asking about the children. I can't, yeah. you know, like all yeah. parents, I can't, can't stop talking. I thought your I wife was a lawyer, but I wasn't really sure. And uh, I'm glad that you, you mentioned that. I think you, your firm or your wife also had an appeal. I'm not sure how many years ago, but it was about maybe what medical bills could be admitted into evidence, which was probably changed by DeSantis with his new law. But that was a big decision that your wife had too, yeah. right? So for our side of the aisle, um, the two cases that Tracy Gunn has advanced that certainly impact our clients was with regard to medical calatin, right? Which said no, no caps, no med mal caps. It, it, it followed on the McCall new caps. So it extended the no caps uh, in medical negligence, finding them unconstitutional. And the other case you're referring to is the George case, J-E-J-O-E-R-T. G, that's uh, what which, it was. Which, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Which tell that you know, to your point, um, you can't put into evidence certain quote, collateral sources, meaning, yeah, we were starting to see the defense would talk on the traumatic brain injury. Well, there's, there's all these charities you can go to, you know, and you know, there's all this free care in, in death cases. Well, like there's all these support groups, there's your church, there's, there's these free, uh, you know, support grieving support groups that you, you know, and there's all these children's programs for the injured child. And, 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 you know, why, why do you want all this medical cost over here from us when you can just go to church and go to the government programs? And so Tracy's case held that those are not uh, appropriate collateral sources uh, in Georgia. And, and yeah, now what, what is going to happen under the, the HLA 37, whether it's a rule of evidence, whether it's substantive, as you know, that's a big fight. But ultimately, yes, the, the, the ability of the defense to bring in certain issues to defeat the cost of past and future medical care has been greatly strengthened. And I have my own thoughts on letters of protection and how we got to where we are with all of this. Um, but I will just leave it. Yeah, uh, yeah, Tracy's an incredible lawyer. She, she as you may or may not know, is uh, shared the, the jury instructions for civil jury instructions. She's currently, I think, ascending chair. She was a past chair of the appellate rules, Florida Bar. I think she's vice chair now. She'll be the chair next year of that. She's written, if you look in the, the, uh, the uh, Florida Bar's auto liability insurance, she's written chapters in, in the various Florida Bar books. So very prolific. She booked the Florida Bar, graduate number one in her law class. So no question about where the children get their academic prowess.
so being being a lawyer is a hard job with stress. You have your clients give you cases and you have a burden to do a really good job for them. And then you also have the stress of trying a case. How do you take care of yourself to, to deal with that? So one of my favorite cartoons that I've ever seen, I think it was in the New Yorker magazine bill and they had this, this client walking in the door of an attorney's office and the client is disheveled, has a box of papers that are spewing out and goes into the office. And in the next frame, you see the lawyer and he's dapper and he's got his, you know, beautiful suit and the tie and the office is perfect, right? The next frame, the client is walking out of the office, never looking better. And the next frame, the last being the lawyer has gone from dapper to disheveled and the papers are now on his desk um, to be dealt with. And I do think that you never take the burden completely from your client. They live with it 24 seven, 365, but you share. I, I, I tell our clients, I'm a minority shareholder. We do contingency fee. I'm your minority shareholder. It's your firm, it's your case. I have an interest as a minority shareholder, but ultimately the key decisions do we go to trial? Do we settle? For example, remain yours as a majority shareholder, but we now are partners. We have partnered up to seek justice for you and your family members. The, I, you know, I, I had a mediator in a non-confidential arena say to me, I think a plaintiff's lawyer leaves a little bit of themselves behind in every catastrophic mediation I've ever overseen. Because these are not cases where you're just trying to get some medical bills paid. These are cases that literally mean the difference between someone getting the rehab and the, and the care and the certainty and the keeping a roof over a family's head for the rest of their life cases. Okay. You know, the, the numbers you threw out are, are numbers that take care of families and provide for children when they're injured with the resources that they need for that when others aren't there to do it. And so, yeah, it, it's tough. When I started, when I was 50, I, I didn't take good care of myself. Then at, at about 50, my family concerned about that said, we're going to get you a tennis racket. And I opened it. Okay. You got a tennis racket. I don't play tennis. <laughs> what are we doing up here? And I said, I'll tell you what, Dalton, our son, I said, and he was like 12 at the time. I said, if you'll take lessons with me so we can do this together, I will learn how to play tennis at age 50. So we got the 7 a.m. tennis lesson at a tennis center. And for about a year or two before he went off to do other sports, he would get up with me and do a 7 a.m. tennis lesson. And that's how I learned the game. Now, I'm not good, Bill, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm probably a 3-5, 4-0, maybe a little better player, and I play around some leagues. And I'm, I'm playing about four days a week. And that's, I think, contributed greatly to health. And, and my doctor told me, whatever you're doing, so when playing a lot of tests, don't stop. Do not stop. So hopefully I'll be here to practice law with my son, my nephew, my wife, my daughter will do her own thing. She went to New York and LA. Hopefully <laughs> she's come back to Tampa. I hope she does, but I'm going to practice law a, a lot of healthy years 
uh, so that I can enjoy all of all of what I'm I'm very fortunate to have going on right now. Do you only handle cases in Florida, or are you also handling cases throughout the country and in other states? No, I, I, I'm 99% um, Florida-based cases. I'm not confined to the Tampa Bay region, certainly, but I, I mean, I've handled cases, you know, a couple of cases in North Carolina and, and other states, but that's what I do is I, I, I and I like staying close to home. Um, I, I think the travel and, and other stressors of trying to, you know, I, I don't know if you know Tommy Harmon, he travels all over doing nursing homes. I was talking to Bill Smoke. He's kind of decided to become the, the carbon monoxide guy and found that subspecialty. So he's going up to like Minnesota to work up a case on carbon monoxide poisoning. And, and I hope I don't have to, to go out of state to keep my practice strong. I, 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 I commend those who do it. I think it's, it, it's wonderful to take your skill sets and make them available wherever people need you. Selfishly though, I like that I'm close to home most of the time. And so I'm, I'm very content, you know, trying cases all over the state of Florida. Most of my cases out of the immediate area are hospital cases where I'll go up to, you know, Jacksonville, Miami, Broward, Orlando, Tallahassee, and, uh, and, and do, do the medical cases. Uh, most of my bad faith cases, frankly, are, are West central, some, some, some down in, in South Florida, uh, and Jacksonville, but that, that's plenty of work. If someone wants to contact you, what is your phone number and your website if you, or whatever information you could give about how to contact you? Sure, Bill. It's um, our phone, 813-228-7070. That's 228-7070. And then gunlawgroup.com. So www.gunwith2slawgroup.com. Lee, anything else you want to share with everyone today? No, I just, listen, I, I'll tell you, I want to thank you, Bill, for the invitation to be together. And I do want to kind of part with a thought about, we, we live in some times where the civil justice system is constantly under attack as being frivolous and unnecessary and juries are runaway verdicts. And, and I just hope anyone who's listening to this at some point will give some pause to that. And, you know, I think we all have to work hard to protect the right to trial by jury, the right to access to courts. And I think it's one of those freedoms that we've all grown up just thinking we could take it for granted. I'm not so sure in these times we can take anything for granted. So as a, as a practitioner in this field and a big believer in a civil justice system that works like we started in my opening comments, it only works if you have rights and it only works if you have a jury system and you have the opportunity to get to a jury with your evidence and let a jury decide the, the, the case for you. Not, not folks who may have a different agenda than just wanting to do with the fair and right thing on the evidence. So thanks for letting me throw that out, Bill. Um, that would be my, my parting wish. Okay. Thank you very much, Lee. Thank you everyone for listening to the Your Injury Lawyer podcast with Lee Gunn. We would appreciate if everyone could give us a five-star review and or tell other people about this podcast. If anyone is interested in being on the podcast, my name is Bill Berkey. I'm with Berkey Law Firm. 
Our number is 239-549-6689. And my website address is www.youryourinjuryinjuryinjuryinjuryinjuryinjuryinjuryinjuryinjuryinjuryinjuryinjuryinjuryinjuryinjuryinjuryinjuryinjuryinjuryinjuryinjuryinjuryinjuryinju